0: Excited Utterance, the evidence and proof podcast. Episode number 126, Daniel Harawa, the false promise of Peña Rodriguez. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Daniel Harawa, an associate professor of law and the director of the Appellate Clinic over at WashU. Now, I have to say, I was really looking forward to this conversation with Daniel because uh, the interview centers around his recent article entitled The False Promises of Peña Rodriguez, which was recently published in the California Law Review. And to put it simply, the article is just fantastic. Daniel takes an incisive look at Rule 606B, this, this rule of evidence that kind of shrouds jury deliberations in secrecy. And he notes that this supposedly path-breaking Supreme Court decision, Peña Rodríguez v. Colorado, that was intended to root out racial animus and other forms of discriminatory conduct in the courtroom, has really failed to live up to its promise. Instead, even in this era post-Peña Rodríguez, Racial animus continues to be a significant problem in deliberation rooms, and more work is yet needed to truly root out discriminatory conduct in jury deliberations. Daniel's piece is important, it's brilliant, and I cannot wait for you to hear our conversation today. Daniel, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thank you for having me. So our conversation today is gonna focus on the so-called no impeachment rule found in Federal Rule of Evidence 606B. And if you would, before we kind of launch into an advanced discussion of Rule 606, just remind our listeners who might not be familiar with the contours of something of a less popular rule. What does Rule 606B exclude from the courtroom?
1: Yeah, so uh, Federal Rule of Evidence 606B and most states have their own version of the rule basically says that during an inquiry about a verdict, a juror may not testify about what happened during deliberations, including any statement made or any incidents that happened in the jury room, or basically just anything about the deliberative process. So the rule is kind of seen as a blanket ban on jurors testifying about what happened in the jury room, which is why the jury is often called a black box. Under the rule, there are limited exceptions. For example, if there's any kind of outside influences or outside information that is brought into the jury room, a juror may testify about that. Uh, But generally, jurors are prohibited from testifying about what happened in the jury room under Rule 606b. And
0: Daniel, in terms of policy justifications, why does the no impeachment rule exist? Why do we make jury deliberations so opaque?
1: Yes. So the Supreme Court has articulated four what it has called public policy rationales for the no impeachment rule, which I'll talk about in a second. And then I think there's a broader concern that the Supreme Court hasn't articulated outright, but I think underlies all of its decisions in this area. So the four concerns are, one, the no impeachment rule is supposed to protect jurors from harassment. So the thought being that if people know what jurors say during deliberations and they don't like what jurors say, they may harass them, attack them, etc. So it's really supposed to protect citizens who engage in the democratic process by serving as jurors. The second rationale is it facilitates freedom of debate. The thought being that if we're not recorded or if our thoughts can't be used against us later, we feel more free to speak openly and honestly We can express opinions that may be unpopular. So that's another reason why we want to keep jury deliberations secret. Third, it promotes public confidence or community confidence in the jury system, which I'll return to in a second. And then finally, it preserves the finality of the verdict. We won't be revisiting jury verdicts all the time by discussing what happened within the jury room. Now, I think this public confidence rationale is the most interesting rationale because I think what the court is really saying is that we as a citizenry don't really want to know what happens in the jury room. When 12 people come together in a room randomly and reach a decision, we expect that some randomness will happen in that room. And nobody really wants to know how the sausage is made because it may make us uncomfortable or may make us doubt the jury system more broadly. I think if that is the case, it's a really interesting question whether secrecy is a good thing But those are the rationales the Supreme Court has given for the no impeachment rule and the ban on divulging what happens during jury deliberations.
0: Well, if I can, I want to pick up on that thread of secrecy and ask what problems are caused by Rule 606b. Under the text of the rule, what type of jury misconduct or animus is going to be concealed by this emphasis on secrecy?
1: So based on a plain reading of the rule, almost all jury misconduct or animus is protected or shrouded under this rule, right? So I'll give you a few Supreme Court cases as examples, because I think they really highlight the problem with jury deliberations remaining secret. So for example, if jurors show up to deliberations high and drunk, and that is revealed to one of the parties... There's really nothing you can do about it under Rule 606B, and that's the Supreme Court's case in Tanner versus United States. Or if jurors decide, hey, we don't like this whole deliberation process, we're tired of being stuck in this room, let's just reach a compromise verdict and split the baby. The Supreme Court said, well, 606B shrouds that too, and that is Hyde v. United States and McDonald v. plus. And so what happens is that even if jurors engage in the most egregious misconduct, like if I were on trial, I wouldn't want my jurors to be drunk and high while deliberating about my case, the court says that the no impeachment rule still stands even in the face of that misconduct. And so there are very real Sixth Amendment implications in the criminal context and Seventh Amendment implications in the civil context for jurors being allowed to engage in that kind
0: of misconduct without any kind of
1: recourse for the parties involved.
0: So against that backdrop, then, the Supreme Court decides this really high-profile case in Peña Rodriguez v. Colorado. So so what was Peña Rodriguez about? Yeah,
1: so before talking about Peña Rodriguez, I'd like to just take a step back and situate it in where the case law was at the time. So after the Supreme Court decided the case, Tanner v. United States, which again is the case where the court said, look, jurors being drunk and high, the no impeachment rule still stands, we can't hear evidence about that. A lot of courts took the court at its word and said, look, we don't pierce jury deliberations. And so what happened is, is a split arose in the lower courts, where courts were battling whether there should be a racial bias exception to the no impeachment rule. So there were some courts that said, look, even if there's evidence that jurors exhibited racial bias during deliberations, We can't hear that under the no impeachment rule, just applying Tanner and the text of Rule 606b faithfully. Whereas other courts said, look, racial bias is just different. We need this exception regardless of the text of Rule 606b. And so some courts created a racial bias exception to the no impeachment rule. And so what the court did in Peña Rodriguez was decide to resolve that conflict in authority And Peña Rodriguez is really the prototypical example of juror racial bias. And in fact, Justice Kagan said an oral argument that it was the smoking gun case of juror racial bias. And so there, Mr. Peña Rodriguez was on trial for sexual misconduct. And one of the jurors during deliberations, who happened to be an ex-law enforcement officer, said that in his experience, Mexican men have a bravado, and this is me quoting, that caused them to think that they can do whatever they want with women, and that nine times out of ten, Mexican men are guilty of sexual assault or sexual misconduct. This juror also said that he didn't believe Mr. Peña Rodriguez's alibi witness because he was, and I quote, an illegal, even though there's no evidence that the person was undocumented. In fact, the person testified that they were a legal resident. And regardless, what does residency status have to do with credibility? But all of this information really came out where this juror really made ranked racist statements. And so the court had to decide whether or not the no impeachment rule gives way in the face of such racism. And the Colorado courts had held that it doesn't. The court said, we look at the text of 606B, we look at the Supreme Court's cases, and we find that we can't inquire further. And the court reversed and said, well, No, we need this exception for racial bias, and the court says, draws from Sixth Amendment fair trial right principles, it draws from Fourteenth Amendment equal protection clause principles, and said that when you think about those two really important fundamental constitutional rights, this racial bias exception is necessary in the face of this clear evidentiary rule.
0: So it seems to me, then, that Peña Rodriguez perhaps could be seen as this hopeful decision, this opportunity to finally start to combat racial animus in the deliberation room. But you note in your really wonderful and fantastic paper, that the decision's legacy has really not lived up to its ideal. So what's one shortcoming of Peña Rodriguez?
1: So in typical Justice Kennedy fashion, he wrote this soaring rhetoric about how racial bias is odious and the court needs to take steps to root it out whenever it can. And it was kind of this declaration about how horrendous racial bias influencing the criminal legal process is, which is great. It's great to read. It's great to see. But then when you look at the standard the court set, it's kind of head-scratching. So the court said, yeah, we hate racial bias in our criminal legal system. We hate racial bias in our jury system. And so we're going to root it out. But then the court said to overcome the no impeachment rule, one, the racial bias must be overt in the court's words. And two, it must significantly motivate the jurors vote to convict. And when you put those two things together, it's clear that not all racial bias will be captured under that standard. And in fact, very little racial bias, as subsequent cases have proved, will be covered under the standard. And then, even then, if a defendant kind of satisfies the standard, which again just says we can look further into jury deliberations to see what happened, the court didn't take the extra step to say, and a new trial is required. And because the court didn't do that, there are some courts that say, look, even in the face of evidence that overt racial bias influenced the juror's vote to convict, there still may be situations where a new trial isn't granted. And so despite its rhetoric, Pena Rodriguez did very little to broaden the ability to capture and to root out racial bias that may influence jury deliberations. And on a daily basis, we just don't know because the jury is such a black box.
0: And I want to pick up on a thread that you just mentioned, because I think that this is quite important. Your paper also demonstrates that racial Animus has actually flourished in the courtroom under Peña Rodriguez, or at least it's increased, unfortunately, despite all the hopes that this would be a great tool, a great precedent for combating racial animus. So how is that occurring? How are we having this counterintuitive or this opposite effect?
1: Yeah, so there are a few things to think about. So the first is, what does it mean for racial bias to be overt? And that may mean different things to different people. So a real case example. A person said that a white juror accused Black jurors in the jury room saying that they didn't want to vote to convict the Black defendants because they were protecting their Black brothers. And the Black jurors in that case came forward and said that made us feel uncomfortable, that may have caused us to change our vote. And the court said, look, I don't find that to be overt racial bias or evidence of overt racial bias. And in fact, the court flipped it and said, I actually find it to be that the white juror was trying to protect against racial bias, which is perverse. And then there's this idea of this significant motivating factor idea where courts say, look, even if there's overt racial bias. So for example, a case out of Pennsylvania, where a juror called a fellow juror who was sympathetic to a Black defendant, an N-word lover, the court said, oh, wow, well, the N-word, I mean, that is overt racial bias but that juror didn't tie their racial bias to their vote to convict. So that doesn't satisfy the Peña Rodriguez standard. And then there's an example, which is, I don't know if it's more egregious, it's just as egregious, where a juror said the defendant was from El Salvador. And so therefore she was more likely to think he was guilty of sexual assault because he was from El Salvador. So over racial bias, she tied it to her vote. But a California court said, well, there was overwhelming evidence of the defendant's guilt that juror gave other reasons for her vote, so we're going to uphold the verdict anyways. And so you see all of these different ways that Pena Rodriguez and the standard that it sets doesn't capture how bias may infiltrate deliberation and, in fact, inoculates the bias from any kind of meaningful redress, given the high standard that it sets.
0: They're such difficult examples even to hear, retold, that it causes me to take a step back and want to assess. And I'm just curious your thoughts. How did the Supreme Court almost fail so badly in Peña Rodriguez? Why make claims of jury racial animus so difficult to succeed? So, Alex, that's
1: the million-dollar question. And I don't know if I have a perfect answer, but I think part of it is the idea that just bad facts make bad law. And so we have a court that waited until it had, again, smoking gun evidence of racial bias and waited till it was presented with that case to create a standard. And unfortunately, it created a standard that was tethered to the facts of that case. So I think that's one problem. But kind of thinking more broadly about the current court, I mean, to me, it kind of fits within the theme of this court being post-racial and this push towards post-racialism. The idea being that, well, we as a society are kind of past race, aside from a few bad apples. And so when the court sees the bad apples, they'll take the opportunity to address them and kind of say, look, we don't do this anymore. We're not that kind of country anymore. And the court really seems unwilling or unable to grapple with the more systematic ways that racial bias still permeates our society. And so I think part of the problem is that the court failed in that it fails more broadly to understand just how deeply rooted racial bias is in our country. And it has failed across all jurisprudential areas to create doctrine and standards that accounts for the deeply rooted nature of racial bias in our society.
0: Now, your paper does an excellent job, not only of identifying Peña Rodriguez's problems, but also proposing potential solutions, potential ways that we can get out of the current difficult situation we find ourselves in. So first, thinking about federal courts and the federal level, what can be done?
1: Yeah, so I always try to be a little hopeful in my papers, and maybe that's a fault of mine. But, you know, I think... Whenever the Supreme Court sets standards, in my mind, there's always room for judges who are willing to be a little bit more capacious in their understanding of standards. So what it means for racial bias to be overt, again, can mean different things to different people. So if judges take a more expansive view of what counts as overt racial bias, I think that's one way the standard could be just a little bit more effective. Same with a significant motivating factor idea. If judges are more capacious in their view of what that means, I think the standard could be a little bit more effective. And then the third thing I think federal judges can do at least is there's a circuit split right now in the lower courts about what is needed for a new trial to be granted. So some courts say, kind of once you have uh, credible evidence of racial bias, a new trial is required. Other courts say you still have to conduct a harm analysis To the extent the question is open, I think if we truly believe that racial bias is odious and has no place in the criminal legal system or the jury process, then it seems to me that the answer has to be that once it's uncovered, a new trial is required. So to the extent that question is open, I think federal courts have room to be more aggressive about granting new trials once they uncover evidence of racial bias.
0: And what about also in state courts? You know, I think some of these reforms will, of course, overlap. But what reforms might state courts pursue to combat racial animus in the deliberation room?
1: Yeah, so I think, and I write this in the paper, I would encourage state courts to jettison the Pena Rodriguez standard altogether. And my proposal, and it's not perfect, and we can talk about why it's not perfect, is to adopt a reasonable observer standard when deciding whether the no-impeachment rule should give way. So could a reasonable person view a juror's comment as evincing racial bias? And then I say, if so, a new trial should be granted. There's no harm analysis once that standard is satisfied. The other thing I posit in the paper is that the reasonable observer standard should be directly tied to a reasonable observer who's aware of the various permutations of racial bias, how racial bias manifests, that it can be coded, that it's just not overt. It's just not slurs. And so it's an aware, reasonable observer who is the observer imagined in this standard. And I think that goes further in that it allows for consideration of more evidence. It allows for more argument. Washington State, for example, has already adopted a similar standard, and it seems to be working a little bit better. And so while it's not the silver bullet, I do think it will do more work. And I do think it's familiar enough where courts could easily implement that standard.
0: I think that this is an awesome proposal and I'm fully on board. And I just kind of want to drill down into it to help our listeners flush out what an objective standard might look like. How does that reasonable observer standard or the objective standard help remedy the problems that we're currently seeing with Peña Rodriguez?
1: Yeah, so I think it remedies the problem in a couple of ways. So one thing we see right now is that judges look at the facts of Pena Rodriguez, they look at the facts of their case, and they decide whether they are similarly egregious, right? And so it's this wooden comparison between the facts in case A to the facts in case B, and then the judge or the court generates an outcome. And the problem with that is that A, it's again, is tied to this old-fashioned form of racism that is tied or rooted in these overt slurs without really thinking about, well, how do we understand racism today? How might people of different experiences view a comment? There's not as much room to consider other sources of information when deciding whether racial bias was exhibited by a juror in the jury room. And so an aware, objective, or reasonable observer this standard, I think the benefit of it is it just allows for more argumentation, right? It allows for a defendant to bring in social sciences, explain, look, this may not sound like racial bias to you, judge, but here is why I think this demonstrates racial bias on the part of this juror. It allows lawyers to tie comments and contextualize comments in the world today, And it will evolve with our understanding, right, of racial bias and how racial bias manifests itself. And so it really grounds itself in community understanding. And since the jury, at the end of the day, is supposed to be a a democratic body formed with members from our community, I think it makes sense to have a standard that really takes into account how a community might perceive a comment. And if a community might perceive a comment, As evincing racial bias and I think that's enough kind of given the fact that I think we all agree that racial bias shouldn't be influencing the criminal legal process. That if the community thinks it is, or a reasonable person from the community could think that it is, then that's enough to say hey we just need to do this again and make sure the next time we do it that trial is free from any racial bias.
0: Daniel, this has been such a meaningful and important conversation. I think, as I said earlier, this has been one of my favorite papers that I've read over the last year. And I just have one final question for you. What's next for the literature? What type of additional paper could shed more insight on this issue?
1: Yeah, so it's a great question, Alex. So I think one thing that we're starting to see, and there have been a few really interesting student notes about this, and so any law students out there, please keep writing, is Does Peña Rodriguez extend to other types of bias, right? So will it extend to gender bias? Will it extend to religious bias? Will it extend to anti-LGBTQ bias? I think that's an open question that courts will need to grapple with. Part of maybe the problem or feature of Peña Rodriguez, depending on your stance, is that it really roots itself in kind of racial bias being specially odious. I think there's a question of whether the court will extend the exception to other types of biases. So I would love to see more work on that. I think there's a question of whether the same principles apply to civil trials. Criminal trials obviously implicate different interests than civil trials, so I think that's a question. And I don't think we should necessarily assume that just because it's a standard for criminal trials, it will necessarily be the standard for civil trials. But something that I would love to see personally and that I hope to work on one day is whether the rationales behind the no impeachment rule and behind jury secrecy more broadly hold up. And I think my concern is, or my intuition is, we adopted this rule from medieval England. We have a Supreme Court that comes up with public policy rationales behind the rule without any real study. And so we just don't know how widespread the problem is. We just have no good idea of what happens in the jury room. And so we don't really have a good idea of how best to Fix our jury system, or to ensure our jury system operates as fairly as possible. So what I would like to see is just more probing into the idea of jury secrecy more broadly, the idea of the no impeachment rule, and asking whether it really does serve the purpose that it's designed to serve, and whether it in fact may insulate all kinds of bad decision making, including decision making based on racial bias, that we just aren't aware of as a society, and if it does, I think that's a debate we should be having as a society, whether we are willing to uphold the system in the face of real evidence of its problems, as opposed to just ignoring its problems and just assuming that it's working in a fair and impartial way.
0: Well, Daniel, this has been absolutely great. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It was super
0: fun. As evidenced by our conversation today, I think Daniel's paper exposes what at least I see as a big flaw or a concerning feature of our current legal system. When we're talking about the shortcomings of Peña Rodriguez, when we're talking about what the, the work that's left to be done in rooting out animus from the deliberation room, we need to take stock of the fact that these problems are caused ultimately by jury secrecy, by Federal Rule of Evidence 606b. And... To be sure, there are some benefits that flow from Rule 606B. We prevent juror harassment, attorneys from trying to find some defect in the jury decision making process that can reopen a case. We also have an element of efficiency from Rule 606b by having a final judgment, one that's not going to be constantly subject to debate. And again, there is some element of legitimacy that is imputed to a general verdict when we don't know the reasoning that went behind or the actual reasoning that justified a particular jury decision. But what we're increasingly seeing, I think, as well, is that Rule 606b has significant problems. It operates as a shield for misconduct and animus and odious behavior in the deliberation room, which leads us to the central question. Is the game worth the candle? Are the benefits that we're accruing from Rule 606b worth all of these problems that we're having to kind of work end runs around. We have Peña Rodriguez to try to root out racial animus in the deliberation room, but as Daniel notes, it doesn't go far enough. So then we have to pur- pursue a, a second initiative or a second court decision to continue to play whack a trying to solve these problems that are ultimately caused by Rule 606b. So I think what we all must do, is recognize that we owe a debt of gratitude to Daniel for teeing up this issue about jury secrecy and about jury deliberations coupled with Rule 606b, and ask ourselves, is this the optimal state of affairs? Is it truly ideal to give juries such a great deal of secrecy and opacity in their decision-making processes, Or would greater structural reform result in a fairer, more just, and a more equitable legal system for all? Thanks so much to Daniel for teeing up these issues. I had a wonderful time chatting with him today, and I hope that you enjoyed our conversation as well. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The producer of Excited Utterance is Ed Chang. And the production editor is Madeline Di Pietro. Music for Excited Utterance is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you'll join us next time when we tackle another piece in the world of evidence and proof.